0: Vox used to be a funny website.
1: Yes. Now we're not fun anymore. Now, now, now that we got more professional, we're not fun anymore.
0: Hello. Welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Sarah Cliff and Dara Lind. We're doing another edition of the popular... Uh, popular with me, popular with hopefully the audience. Um, Ask Weeds Anything feature. Uh, we got a bunch of great questions over email and in the Facebook group. Some of the questions were not that great, but we're going to answer the great ones. <laughs> yes, uh, some of the
2: questions were actually too good. Like, yes, there are so lots we do not have of the really smart questions you guys have that we just don't know about that I would like to be answered.
0: Yeah. Yes, I should also say that that what we are attempting to do here is deliver you high quality answers as high quality audio content. Some of you have questions that um, i i hope to answer someday but we don't have good answers to give at the moment in which case we are not going to do it um, so here let's just let's just delve right in with uh, some of the some of the questions for everybody um marshall bartley asked i wonder which of your stories you were most proud of uh, i am filled with nothing but shame for my stories uh, <laughs> but but i bet sarah and Dara do some some actual good work what, what are you guys proud of
2: Uh, I I know that the answer to this question should should be the piece on the process or lack thereof that the U.S. has at the border for not taking in people who are seeking asylum uh, at ports of entry legally. It's a... Really, it's one of those policies that because it's not as like obviously visual or as active as some of the other things they've done on immigration can be a little bit hard to wrap your head around. But I'm with the help of our Viz team and editors, I did it really, you know, I like laid it out. That should be the answer. The actual answer is that a couple of weeks ago, somebody discovered—somebody at Vox discovered the wrap-up of Jeb Bush's 2016 presidential campaign that I had written that was, like, some ridiculously large number, like, 17 of the saddest moments from Jeb's presidential campaign— And honest to goodness, when this was dredged up, I was in an all-day event, and I'm sitting there at lunch catching up on, you know, the Vox Media Slack rooms with tears streaming down my face because I did not know I could be that funny. So that's what I'm going to put in the show notes. Very
0: good. It's very funny. Vox used to be a funny website.
2: Yes. Now we're not fun
1: anymore. Now now, now that we got more professional, we're not fun anymore. Um, So I'll just, you know, think of the stories I've written for Vox, and probably the one that I'm most proud of, I wrote pretty early in Vox, like 2015 or so, it was a story about central line infections, which are not something that get a lot of attention. They're infections you get when you have some kind of IV essentially placed into usually your arm somewhere else that's delivering you continuous medications. But these infections happen thousands of times a year. They result in thousands of deaths. And it turns out that they're almost universally preventable if a certain checklist is followed, if a certain safety checklist that is not too hard to follow is actually implemented. Um, so I did a pretty in-depth story looking at the central line infections. Um, and I looked at the case of a really terrible case of a four-year-old girl named Nora who um, died after experiencing four central line infections in her last year of life. And it, you know there two reasons I was proud of that story. One is just it, it was a challenging one to write. It was one that took like four or five drafts to get through, I think had like two complete overhauls, but really got better as I worked through it. Um, and that is one reason I'm kind of proud of it. The other is that it just seems to have had a pretty significant impact. I've heard from a lot of hospitals who have incorporated some parts of it into their training materials, like a video we did for it. Um, you know, I've heard from nurses who have said, you know, this is something I'm sharing at my hospital. So that is always like the most gratifying thing for me to hear is that our stuff is getting out there somewhere. So I'll, I'll put a link to it um, in show
0: notes. But That's the story I'm going to pick. I'm going to give a serious answer. In terms of policy impact – Far and away, the most influential work that I have done, that, that I am proud of, is a series of stories beginning at Slate and continuing on to Vox about Amtrak trade boarding procedures. <laughs> oh, yes. I think this is a very important subject. Unfortunately, the policy impact that I have
1: had it's been very negative. has been
0: in the wrong direction <laughs> because Amtrak officials over the years, rather than responding to my point by adopting the correct boarding procedures, continue to push for a $7 billion overhaul of Union Station that they believe would alleviate capacity problems that could be solved by opening the doors, (laughs) and they have now begun to close the mezzanine boarding area in New York's Penn Station. It's very ridiculous. Please read my articles about this. Write your congressman. There was um, actually—the outgoing chair of the House Transportation Committee uh, attempted to put a a rider in a bill to— mandate that Amtrak produce some kind of explanation for why they make people board the trains like this. But as far as I know, they haven't actually done anything on it. And I I sincerely hope that the next Congress can address this critically important issue.
1: I hope so. Okay. Should we do another question that's for all of us? Yes. Okay. Stephen Lindley asks, what is the best federal-run department? Amtrak, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Who gets their shit done well without a ton of drama? Who wants to go first?
2: We didn't think any of us had answers to this, and then we were discussing this before the episode started taping, and we realized that we all have answers. They may not be the right answers, but we all have have ideas. Yes. <laughs> um, I was, I'm thinking that, you know, the kind of getting their stuff done well and without a ton of drama, like, that's that's the coordinate plane on which I was always scoring Jeff Sessions higher than everybody else scored Jeff Sessions. But now that Sessions is gone, uh, that spot is open. I think the right answer might currently be Ben Carson's Department of Housing and Urban Development. I don't know about getting their shit done well, but it certainly seems to me that in terms of radical policy overhauls uh, without the kind of attention that most cabinet departments get under the Trump administration, which is, you know, spending six figures on a desk, or, you know, on private flights or all the other kind of petty corruptions that have dogged lesser cabinet members under Trump. The Department of Housing and Urban Development, when it gets in the headlines, is because it's considering cutting things that lots of people think it would be bad to cut and rely on, but that are totally in line with a conservative vision of what HUD should be doing. So
0: I'll go with that. I'm going to say the the Federal Reserve, that I have voiced sometimes skepticism of the institutional independence of the Fed, but that the system has really worked as designed in the Trump era, that he has picked, you know, not exactly the people I would pick, but reasonable appointees to the board. The professional staff remains very high quality. The decision-making, you know, one can always question it at the margin, but it's— well within the realm of plausible ideas and the national economy is doing well, right? That I think a lot of people would have thought two, three, four years ago that if you elect a president who has like no idea what he's doing on any subject, that it's going to like tank the economy. And it doesn't. And that's because the Fed system works. It it works well. It works as designed.
1: I'm going to go with the first half of the question. What is the best run federal department interpreting that as like who's putting out kind of the best policy right now? And um, I'm going to go with the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, which has just been like surprisingly well regarded in the Trump administration by people who oppose a lot of the other things that are happening. Um, It's being run by this guy, Scott Gottlieb. He's been doing a lot of Really excellent work to um, push back on e cigarettes. So, he's been leading a lot of stuff around um, Juul, which I hear is what the kids are using. Um, so, he's been doing a lot of good policy to tamp down on that. And then there's just like a hodgepodge of like positive things. Like, you know, he's leading a movement to try and save the research dogs. So they don't have to be euthanized so they can be put out for adoption. Um, a lot of these beagles that end up being used in research. Um, there's just a lot of positive stuff happening at the FDA, Um, I believe some work also um, around salt consumption and reducing that, that they are the only agency I can think of right now that is doing policy that is both well-regarded by legislators and activists on both sides of the aisle.
2: Although, aren't they the ones who are trying to, like— force non-dairy milks to be labeled. Oh, they do have the great milk debate. Yeah. Yes. I, 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 I'm not Just in super. case you were concerned that almonds were actually, like, milked by milking machines, had udders, almond udders. Oh, that's a
1: weird image. There are weirder images that right. could have come up with. Dara, oh, your turn to yeah, ask Yeah, sure. Question. All right. So
2: what can the 116 Congress get done, Ryan Featherstone asks. And while I'm sure he wasn't asking just about Amtrak policy, I guess we've already answered that
0: part <laughs> of the question. I'm really thinking Nothing. I'm thinking nothing is going to get done. Maybe some government shutdowns that will be brief and then end over wall funding disputes. Um, But I don't – I just like – I I don't see anything happening. I see. So the thing I see happening, which
1: is like a version of nothing but is less nothingness, is like – especially like when I think of the healthcare space, I think there will be some like – policy clarification. So like when I think of the healthcare space, I feel like there is going to be this two-year period where Democrats are getting ready for the presidential election, where they're trying to clarify like, okay, like what is our vision on healthcare? As we've covered on the weeds, there's a lot of different plans to choose from. Those plans aren't going to pass in the 116th Congress, but I think there is still an important function to those two years of creating the time to actually Come to a policy consensus, you know, finesse through the different details that pull the different plans apart. Right now, so I kind of see the 116th Congress not as a Congress that is going to pass a lot of legislation, but a Congress that gives time for policy platforms to kind of be crystallized and bring the party together going into the 2020 election.
2: Yeah, I mean, related to Sarah, like I don't think we're going to see a lot of. It's not going to be a legislative behemoth of a Congress, but we're, in addition to the kind of policy clarifying function that having one chamber controlled by Democrats unlike the 115th is going to do, that also provides an opportunity for really robust oversight. Like the party in opposition to Donald Trump is going to have subpoena power, which is not a thing that, would, that exists now or existed for the first two years of his presidency. And that is certainly relevant when it comes to some of the Russia and corruption investigation stuff that many previous Weeds episodes have kind of thrown up their hands and wondered why House Republicans in particular weren't interested in doing anything. And it also means that actual policy decisions getting made by executive branch agencies are going to be available for scrutiny. And the decision-making process that went into them is going to be scrutinized. I think that Democrats really do have a serious triage problem just because there is so much that they could be focusing on. And I think they're going to have to figure out uh, how much attention to devote to Russia and Mueller and other things that seem like big ticket issues and how much attention to devote to some of the executive branch, like actual policies that are getting made. But
0: that's certainly an opportunity that you don't need both houses of Congress to achieve. OK. So Michael Morris wants to know, as writers, how do you decide what's important enough to cover? How do you avoid letting clicks and Trump tweets make those decisions for you? Sarah, you love writing up Trump <laughs> tweets, right? I think I just ignore the Trump It's like tweets. all day. I've never um, seen you write up a Trump tweet.
1: No, I've I've written up his health care tweets. Okay, I've written up some Trump health care tweets in my day. We're going to cover everybody. So I work on a lot of projects that really are divorced from the news at this point. And that definitely was not true in 2017 when I was covering the repeal efforts in the House. But, you know, I decide what's important enough to cover by kind of like looking at the health care landscape and thinking about like what's not getting enough attention. You know, that's how I ended up doing this project I'm doing on emergency Billing—that's you know, kind of where my other podcast, The Impact, comes from. It's a kind of boring answer, but it, at least like the stuff that I am covering this year—it's really stuff that I feel like has a really concrete effect on the country, but isn't getting enough attention. And um, you just you just let the Trump tweets pass you by.
2: For those of us who aren't like running our own podcasts and. Um, Absolutely, you know, 100% booked up with independent, groundbreaking projects on policy. One of the biggest misunderstandings that I see, even among people who are generally pretty savvy about media, is the assumption that writers decide what they're writing about. Yeah. Um, It's an ongoing conversation between writers and editors. Our policy and politics desk, our pod here at Vox, is really in an ongoing conversation about what do we cover and how. And so... Often the question isn't, do I write up this policy or do I write up this Trump tweet? It's, do we as Vox write up this Trump tweet? If so, who is going to do it? So there it's usually a question of, "Okay, can I turn this, can I say something interesting about this? Because there are people who are going to pay attention to things when Donald Trump tweets about them and aren't going to pay attention to them otherwise. Can I use this to actually shine a light on something? And can I do that quickly enough so that I can go about the rest of my day? No, I think that's actually a good point for the Trump
1: tweets. Because like I said, I have written up Trump tweets. And like I write them up when I feel like they can like actually shine a light and like are an important like – oh, when President Trump, for example, is tweeting about pre-existing conditions, like – That was one I was like, okay, like I am doing these because there is something really important to be addressed here and how he's talking about it. So I think that is actually like a really interesting, like clearer frame on like how we make those decisions. But I
2: do think that the flip side of that is like both of us are in a relatively senior position. And so if we decide we don't want to write up the Trump tweet, we don't always have to. But usually that means someone else will have to write it up instead.
0: I think Trump tweets are super important. And it's really important to write them up. Um, this is how the president communicates uh, with the public. There's a question of like clicks versus importance, right? So, like the morning that we are recording this, I started out sort of plotting away, as I have been for a while, on something about the Minneapolis 2040 plan, which, you know, I think is only of middling importance in the sense that the city of Minneapolis is not that large, but is of like enormous importance in that it touches on a question that is impacting uh, the economies throughout the developed world and is an issue that I really care about a lot, but I wound up abandoning it for a clickier idea related to uh, Trump-Russia and Robert Mueller's investigation. The Mueller issue, I think, is also very important, but is very well covered. And I could not honestly tell you that the reason I wrote that story was that I thought like nobody would make the point that like Trump is a bad president <laughs> if I didn't wake up this morning and do it. That is a difficult balance. The only thing I would say that like helps you reconcile the balance is that there's always the proverbial like tree fall in the woods and nobody's there to hear it, right? It's like the subject of your story might be important, but your actual story is only important if people see it. Right? So, to just cover something that's quote unquote important but then have it die is not really achieving what you would want to achieve by covering an important subject. It's not that there's no trade off exactly, but like I'm always trying to think about how can I write a story that I think a lot of people will read on a subject that I believe is important. And that does sometimes mean not writing a story that I think is important because I can't think of a way to make it a story that people will read. Like my goal is like here is a topic that deserves more attention. So my goal is not to say that like I gave it attention in the sense that I spent a day paying attention to right. it. But I want to give it attention in the sense that other people pay attention to it. So that means like putting in the thought like do I have an angle here that works? Do I have a good headline? Or am I still just kind of futzing around trying to learn about it personally? Okay. Kaylee Yokum has a great question. What do you guys think is the most overrated or underrated in terms of impact Act versus Public Response, Trump administration policy decision of 2018.
1: So I think overrated in terms of got more attention than it actually had policy effect is the repeal of Obamacare's individual mandate, which— Seemed like a big deal at time, you know, even if I think back like a few years, especially when I think back to the Supreme Court decision, it was like expected to be total catastrophe and chaos if the individual mandate went away. Everyone like loved to talk about three-legged stools. You need the guaranteed issue. You need the subsidies and, you know, you need the mandate. And if you cut out one leg of the stool, the stool obviously doesn't work. And that just didn't happen. You actually see the Obamacare marketplaces like doing decently okay without the requirement to buy insurance. You know, insurance plans, there's actually more of them competing this year than there were last year. Um, premiums for mid-level plans went down for the, possibly the first time in Obamacare's history. Um, enrollment's lagging a little bit, but it's not like a disaster where everyone has fled. And you know, there are actually some explanations for why it might match where it was last year by the end of the enrollment period in a few weeks. Um, it seemed like a, something that would have a big policy consequence when it happened. And I will—I mean, I will say, yes, premiums would have gone down even more if the mandate were there. But it hasn't been this, like, huge disaster that healthcare wonks had expected. Um, so I'm just going to—I don't, don't know if I have a underrated one in my mind. Maybe I will after everyone else talks. But I think overrated is repeal of the individual mandate.
2: All right. So I'm going to start with underrated because I'm not totally sure how I'm framing my overrated one. But the fact that the U.S. is taking in like fewer than half as many refugees at most in fiscal year 2019 as it did in fiscal year 2016 is wild. And no one paid attention to it. They like rushed it out in a 4 p.m. press release. Mike Pompeo said a thing. There was half a day of coverage. And then something else moved on. You know, it's just – The U.S. has radically restricted refugee resettlement. And some of this has been in fairly quiet ways. Like they're not – they didn't keep pace in 2018 with the pace that they set for themselves as slow as that was. They've kind of added all of these extra screening processes that require the FBI to sign off and they haven't added extra FBI staff. A lot of that is the kind of stuff that like gets buried in the bureaucratic process so you can understand there not being a lot of coverage of it. But the the cap is like the one time – a year that refugee policy actually creates a news cycle and just went uh, in terms of the public response. And I I found that shocking. The overrated thing, I really—it's so tempting to troll everybody and get— epic amounts of hate mail and say that for all of the attention paid to family separation, it affected a lot fewer people than a lot of the other immigration things the Trump administration has done. I think given the depth of impact on those people, it probably isn't a good idea to actually go all the way with that. But I do think that the attention paid to family separation after the court imposed deadlines for reunification, the like, oh, not all families have been reunited news cycles that have happened. Uh are pretty disproportionate given that we're now talking about, you know, double-digit numbers of families. And if you want to talk about double-digit numbers of families getting separated, the travel ban, deportations of people who have been living in the U.S. for a long time, uh, you know, plenty of changes to the legal immigration process all probably affect more families than that.
0: I think what's been overrated is Trump's various trade antics. Um, He has— Driven an incredible amount of attention to this subject, but the actual impact has been really, really, really low. Like, I think if you are like honest with yourself, like, how has your personal life been altered by the imposition of tariffs on imported aluminum? Like, Apologies if you work at that one nail factory, but like everything that happens in the government does impact people. But trade, for whatever reason, has a kind of um, prestige in the media such that these like small— changes get front-page news made out of them, when the impacts are often very modest, the changes being proposed are are not that big. And the differences with the conduct of the Obama and Bush administrations are also not as large as people think they are. Like the Obama administration was always tweaking rules for importing metal according to various lobbyists and anti-dumping procedures. And nobody ever cared um, because it's just not that—it's like a trade story for the metals industry, not like a— tier one policy subject. Then conversely, what I think has been underrated is non-climate environmental policy, where you have, I think, the opposite phenomenon as as what you have in trade, which is that, like, Trump keeps saying in interviews that he's really into clean air and clean water, but just has this disagreement about climate. Just like Trump keeps saying that he has this drastic new trade policy. So it's like people are— Going along, even though the coverage of Trump on trade is often very critical, it it buys into the idea that he's making big change there and he keeps saying he's not doing anything on non-climate pollution but like the EPA—this was 2017 rather than 2018 but like they overruled uh, the previous group of scientists to let like— Damaging neurotoxin into pesticide. Uh, they've weakened rules against atmospheric mercury. All kinds of particulate emissions are going up. Um, the changes to the fuel economy standards have a lot of implications for asthma, things like that. Um, so this is a very concrete, direct impact on people, both on the cost and, I should say, on the benefit side. Right? I mean, it it, it really means something to the people engaged in these very polluting power plants, that they're getting relief from the Trump administration. It also means a lot to people whose children are being poisoned by toxic heavy metals. Um, And so many people who I know, parents who like— would be really concerned if they heard some like safety problem with some brand of bottle that their kids might be using, like have no idea what's going on in environmental policy as as it relates to this. So I think that's been that's been very underrated. let's i oh,
1: can I ask a question to Matt? That's like one yeah. of the most common questions we got. Everyone wants to know about rank-choice voting. Everybody I would say this is the hottest topic in the Weeds AMA. So we pulled a question from—I might get your last name wrong. I'm sorry. Hannah Guzwiz, Maybe. I am extremely interested in the implications of rank choice voting. Who isn't? Would love to hear your thoughts on the success of RCV in Maine and how it might look in other states or even a presidential election. And I, I hear you spend some time in Maine, man. Oh, yeah.
0: Well, so what happened here is that Maine had two gubernatorial elections in a row in which a very right-wing governor won with a minority of the vote, um, thanks to sort of third-party ticket splitting. Uh, there was a backlash to this. And so Maine implemented a ranked choice voting rule, but only for federal offices, which was a a little weird since it was clearly the gubernatorial election that had inspired it. And then this wound up making a difference in the main second congressional district. The incumbent, Bruce Poliquin, finished in first place, but he got less than 50 percent of the vote. There were two different third-party candidates who had both said on the campaign trail that they were going to be casting their Poliquin vote last— you, like in effect endorsing his Democratic opponent for second choice. Um, and so Jared Golden wound up winning thanks to the second choice votes. There's going to be a lawsuit because Polygon, who lost, is going to say that ranked choice voting is, is illegal somehow or unconstitutional. I think that this is a good idea. I think that people would like to vote expressively. Uh, I think most people who cover politics professionally disapprove of that kind of expressive voting for third parties uh, and often spend time uh, in October of election years trying to berate people for their wasted expressive votes. But I think that voting is fundamentally an expressive activity and we we should embrace it. We should let people vote expressively. And ranked choice voting is a good way to align people's desire to cast expressive votes with a desire to have policy outcomes that at least vaguely reflect public preferences and democratic legitimacy. Um, So I, I would encourage more states to go for it. An interesting subsidiary question is, okay, if you have ranked choice voting, does that mean more people will vote for third party candidates? Does that let third parties get off the ground institutionally? I'm not sure. It will be interesting to see. Maine would be a fruitful state for that kind of thing. They've had independent governors. It was a very strong Ross Perot state. Uh, Angus King is nominally an independent senator. Um, so, you know, it, it would be the place to test it out. And I, I think uh, I think it's a good idea. More people should do it. Should we, should we answer Hannah Eichner's question?
2: Oh, sure. Let's sure. answer Hannah Eichner's okay. question. Or or let's explain why we're not answering Hannah Eichner's question. Okay. Guess,
0: wh- as wh- the- what do you think your biggest ideological or political differences with each other are? We should probably take a political compass quiz determine the scientifically. I will be
2: back in 15
0: minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I think Dara is too soft on crime.
2: I don't think it's a matter of being soft on crime. I think it's a matter of understanding the trade-offs with any you know, given criminal justice regime. Um, <laughs> I, don't come, I don't necessarily come down on one side or the other of that. I just feel like we need to have an open conversation about punitiveness if we're going to actually endorse punitive policies. Anyway— um, I, think I think Matt's that, more cynical than I am. Yeah, I I think I think that's definitely true. I think that, that's, that the stuff that comes up in the podcast is as much about uh, temperament and about, like, the mm-hmm. questions that we want to answer. It's not that, like, Matt is more, you know, to a different place on the political compass than I am or whatever. That, like, it's about the things that we find interesting. And those are kind of—that tends to be what guides us as journalists and what leads us to have different takes on stuff when it comes across the news transom. I mean, I think it's interesting we don't actually know our
1: ideological differences as well, because I think it's just not the structure of the show, which is a structure that's very familiar to media, where you have, like, person A and person B, and, like, you start a debate, and, like, you know exactly what their viewpoints are going to be. Like, I feel like we have a decent number of episodes where I don't actually fully know, like, what everyone else is is going to say about a given issue.
0: Look, if, you, if you're a Weeds listener, you are probably wear underwear, and and we've all heard every New Year's resolution in the book, and the one you really should be focusing on is being more comfortable in 2019 with Tommy John, the revolutionary company that is redefining comfort for men and women. Tommy John has the most comfortable men's and women's underwear on the planet, keeping men neat, and nestled and women panty line free. Both their men's and women's underwear sport a no-wedgie guarantee, comfortable stay-put waistbands, and a range of fabrics that are luxuriously soft. Feather light, moisture wicking, breathable, and designed to move with you, not against you. No bunching, no riding up. Plus, Tommy John has a life-changing women's line, luxurious hibernation-improved loungewear for men and women, and their latest invention, the first ever stay-tucked dress shirt for men. If you stick to one resolution this year, let it be no more wedgies. Because not only does Tommy John have a no-wedgie guarantee, they also have a best pair you'll ever wear or it's free guarantee, which means if you do not love your first pair, you will get a full refund. So hurry! to tommyjohn.com slash weeds right now for 20% off your first order. That's tommyjohn.com slash weeds for 20% off only at tommyjohn.com, tommyjohn.com.
2: I have a question. Uh, well, Allison Johnson asked this question, but I, I also have this question, and I'm excited to be able to ask it to you, Sarah. How has the process of going through birth and maternity leave changed your thoughts on maternity-related policy?
1: Oh, man. I think it really did. And maybe will uh, maybe have thoughts on this, too, as the other parent on the weeds. Um, it made me less <laughs> admirable, really generous maternity leave policy because— I found it really—like, I, I love my kid, and he's so much more fun now that he's he's just about six months, um, and he's so much more fun than he was at, like, six weeks. But it was just really hard being home with him all day um, and very isolating, too. Like, you, you don't really actually—because of the structure of American leave, because it's so short, usually about, like, three months for— like, at least the women I know are pretty lucky to have about three months off. You don't really know a lot of people who are on leave when you're on leave, even if you know a lot of people having babies because, like, the things don't line up exactly right. And it becomes, like, a very weird, isolating time where you, like, make these lunch plans with people, but then there's also, like, eight hours left in the day and you have this, like, very unpredictable, tyrannical boss Um it made—and I talked— The yeah, tyrannical
0: boss is the baby.
1: Yes, yes, not, not yes. Laura. Not Vox. No, no, no. Okay. The tyrannical <laughs> boss is, like, 100% my offspring, <laughs> not anyone here at Vox Media. So it made me think that being on leave is, like, harder than I thought it would be. And maybe that would be different if I was in, like, somewhere like Sweden where there's, like, a whole culture around leave because everyone's off for a year. So you, like, have way more overlap with your friends and, like, you have a lot more social support and, like, people to see— I think it definitely like shaped how I thought about, you know, being home with kids for someone like who is not used to that part of their lives. Um so I guess that's the biggest one. Um I guess the other one Oh, it made me very skeptical and angry at um how the federal government and how other sources talk about breastfeeding, which is an incredibly hard thing to do and I feel like the benefits of it are hugely overstated that the federal government recommends that women exclusively breastfeed for 6 months and then continue breastfeeding while introducing solid foods for the rest of the year which is a really really hard thing to do you know like i ended up in the emergency room with infections related to breastfeeding which is not something i feel like i was informed about in like my education as a pregnant woman and i I'm just really. I, I came away from all that like very frustrated at the rhetoric around breastfeeding and this almost like dogmatic attitude, like that this is what is best for your baby, when actually the research on it is much much sparser than you'd expect. So that's what I got. Okay, so this is from Andrew Petro. It's another non-policy question for Matt. It says, you know, you mentioned a few times on the podcast you have a toddler, and it's also clear that you do your homework. You know things. You read things. Take your job seriously and do it well. So how do you do all that? Tips on having a successful work career while also being a great parent or at least a decent human being. Yeah, Matt I, is a great parent for the record. And a decent human well, being.
0: I mean, everyone should obviously ask, ask my wife how great and decent I am. Um, it's not for me to judge. You know, I will say this is not advice that in the sense that I think anyone can just take my advice, um, which is that, look— I was a founder of Vox.com. Jose was born shortly after that happened. We did not have people with kids on staff and it was imp- You were the first parent. Yes, and Fox. it was important to me to exert my privilege as a founder to like set a positive tone for flexibility around parenting. And then secondarily the nature of this work lends itself to flexibility. Um, It is very easy to work on articles or to read things or to answer emails and stay informed about the world at 8.30 p.m. if that, you know, is the time that you have. Um, It's... Sometimes happens that news breaks late in the afternoon, but the best time to publish stories is, like, usually in the morning. Um, So it works to sort of be flexible with your time, and that's what's most important with kids. I mean, like, the thing about kids is they go to bed early, Um, and so it's a shame if you have to work late, you wind up missing them. Uh, But if you can come home and, like, hang out and do dinner and bath and bedtime, then, like, Kid will be in bed and I I usually like get back online and do some more stuff after that. Obviously, if you have a job that involves a lot of, you know, direct customer or client service or interaction, on-call availability, that kind of thing, like you just can't do that, right? I mean, and I think this is a a sort of a a classic Claudia Golden finding about women and, and the wage gap, but is that- These kind of professions where you are expected to be at the beck and call of other human beings uh, are just very challenging to combine with child-rearing responsibilities. Her empirical findings are that that's very, very gendered in its impact, uh, but just like having a penis doesn't resolve the like time conflict that results there. It's just men have traditionally offloaded the, the parenting responsibilities and so you know that's just like a long-winded way of saying that, like ultimately, this is a question for society. Um, we have not really, as a country or any country, tried to have the idea that people should both participate in child rearing and participate in economic life in a robust way simultaneously. And unless you do something to make that more possible for a wider range of people in more mainstream uh, job situations, like, it's just not going to happen. You can't, like, will yourself into um, children's biological needs matching up with the demands of, like— unregulated capitalism.
1: Um, Sashwat Khandapudi asks, will there ever be comprehensive immigration reform or, more selfishly, when will the U.S. give more employment-based green cards so I can get one? Kind
0: of different questions. Those are
1: very different (laughs) questions.
2: I I actually was asked a version of this at an event that I did recently where people were talking about the difference, you know, the kind of fight between doing comprehensive immigration reform and doing piecemeal immigration bills. And the fact of the matter is that at this point, like, yeah, Congress has not passed comprehensive immigration reform. And it was just it's been discussing doing it for over a decade. But also like during that time, Congress hasn't exactly passed piecemeal immigration reforms. Like it's not like there have been things even during times of unified one party rule that like there have been parts of the immigration system that one party is willing to agree need to be changed and they're willing to do that. So at a certain point, it seems like If there's going to be any sort of immigration overhaul, it's going to have to be one big bill and then everybody swallows it and gets out of the way. The employment-based green card question, I don't know. I feel like... Four years ago, it would have been extremely likely that if President Romney had won in 2012, I think we would absolutely see yes. more employment-based green cards. But right now, the fight on quote-unquote merit-based immigration within the Republican Party uh, that hasn't been had yet and needs to be had is between people who think that merit-based immigration means you actually bring in people who are skilled, who are educated, who are going to increase the human capital of the U.S. and between people who use merit-based immigration to just mean less family-based immigration and who are skeptical of people coming in who could be taking jobs from Americans or changing American culture. If you're part of that latter camp, using green cards as opposed to just having temporary work visas that can't be turned into a green card sounds like a very bad idea. Uh, So if that side ends up kind of winning or tacitly taking over the Republican Party, I think the odds that you see— a reform that, you know, that allows people to self-petition for green cards or that allows people to come in already as permanent residents is much, much, much lower than it would have been in like 2013 Republican Party.
0: OK, Sarah, what's the most off the wall or, or really just your yes. favorite information to, to come out of the Oregon Medicaid lottery ah. experiment? This is a Matthew Sanders question, but so it's, it's a great one. It shows, it, is. it shows you've been paying attention. He's really been
1: paying attention to yes. the show. He knows his health care. OK, so the so Oregon... on the
0: test. <laughs>
1: the Oregon Medicaid lottery, for those who haven't been paying as close attention, is kind of this big set of studies based on a lottery that Oregon did um, a little while back where they had a Medicaid expansion. They only had a limited number of spots. So they essentially did a lottery to let people into Medicaid, creating a great randomized experiment that Amy Finkelstein and Kate Baker have been studying for past half decade or so. I think the most interesting— interesting finding for me is a—I don't, don't even remember when this one came out—but a finding that the people who get Medicaid have less credit card debt and are better financial situations than those who don't. Because I think that paper is a really good reminder of health insurance is sort of about getting healthier, but it's really about financial protection, that it's really about protecting you from those giant bills that could easily ruin your credit with something really simple, you know, like a day or two in the hospital uninsured could really decimate someone's savings pretty quickly. So I've always thought that it's like your favorite children. It's very difficult to choose your favorite Oregon Medicaid lottery experiment findings. But if I had to choose one, it would probably be that one because I think it's a nice reminder of how wide-reaching the effects of health insurance are. It's not just about health status. It's really about security instability. You, you are not paying for better health when you buy health insurance. You're paying for protection from financial risk. You're paying for the insurance side of things.
2: I want to ask Matt a question from Kyle Gardner. It seems like our civil service system is out of date, incredibly challenging to enter into, and doesn't do an effective job competing for top talent. Are there countries that have more effective civil servant processes, and how would you reform the process?
0: Okay, I was really glad to get this question because a million years ago, when I was a college student, the first time I came to Washington D.C. was as part of some loopy project that the Council for Excellence in Government was running. Like they had some—I don't know how they even found this group, but it was like this panel of college students and we were supposed to tell them about how you could improve like youth interest in going into public service and civil service careers. The thing that has driven me crazy about this ever since these original discussions is that the problem is— that Republicans don't want there to be an effective civil service. So there's like an interesting discussion we could have about like how could you improve USAjobs.gov, which like is a bad website. Like go look at it and try to understand like how would I apply for these jobs? It's, It's very opaque, right? Or you can say to yourself like, well, the pay is not competitive at the high level right? So you should give people more pay. Or you could say, look, it's just not respected in the right way, right? That like three and four-star generals are not that highly paid relative to the objective significance of that job. But they're very honored and respected in American society. There's a lot of deference given to even rank and file military personnel. But like high-ranking military leaders are big shots in America. So you could say, well, we should make senior civil servants big shots. But like... What makes the difference in all of those things, and like why the the military is like a really solid organization right like this is a big bureaucracy that you know you can disagree with policies, but like they are really good at their core missions the aircraft carriers, they all work really well, the planes fly it's because both of the parties want it to work, and then you can overcome these kind of specifics or find that some of them aren't that big of a deal. But it's like just not the case that the Republican Party wants the Environmental Protection Agency to be like the most amazing organization that is like incredibly adept and aggressive at finding environmental threats and eliminating them. And and you really see this at – the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that Elizabeth Warren spent an incredible amount of time engaging with the literature on civilian government agencies she was really thoughtful about finding a better way to structure it and largely implemented those ideas and it all got off to a great start but then Donald Trump became president a vacancy arose he made an interim appointment of Mick Mulvaney And he's just set about deliberately wrecking it, right, from like changing the name of the agency, screwing around with their acronym. And there's like nothing Warren could have done better to like make this work. Like the problem is that the president doesn't want it to work well. So he put in charge someone whose mission is to destroy it. And every single member of Congress on the Republican side agrees with him about this. And the donor base of the Republican Party agrees with him about this and like— If you have an institution in America like the Republican Party that does not want civilian agencies to be effective, they just aren't going to be.
1: All right, Dara. Yes. Rebecca Heidowitz asks, based on recently released FBI hate crime stats and policy preferences of the administration, would it be a good idea if people fitting certain demographics had go bags ready?
2: So— this is—and and not to unfairly tee off on Rebecca Heidowitz, uh, this is one of a few questions that we got asked for this episode that I think reveal a certain amount of conviction that things are currently, like, dystopically bad. The, the short answer to that question is is theoretically I'm sure I could could think of a demographic for whom that would make sense. But for most demographics that you can name, the answer is no. Like. As far as hate crime statistics are concerned in particular, our science and health journalists here at Vox do a really good job of pointing out the difference between changes in relative rates and changes in base rates. And while there was a rise in reported hate crimes to the FBI last year, although you also want to think about the extent to which hate crimes are particularly likely to not get reported as hate crimes, if that's not already something that people are thinking about— the relative rate of, you know, like the base rate of those hate crimes is still extremely low. Like we're talking about 7,000 single bias incidents in 2017. That's a big sounding number, but there are 300 million people in the United States. Um, And in particular, you know, I think I personally, as someone who myself is A member of at least three groups that I that could be considered like targeted or vulnerable under this administration as a a woman, a Jew, and a journalist. Like, I do spend a certain amount of time thinking about the difference between those identities and the identities that I write about, where there is a much more obvious like threat that the government poses to them. But even unauthorized immigrants under this administration, like, as real as the threat to them is, most people aren't getting deported in any given year. I think that it's It's really important to try to retain perspective on whether you in particular are at risk, not least because – If you're convinced that you are the person who is in trouble right now, you are not necessarily going to be paying attention to other people around you who you may have the capacity to help who may be in more trouble than you are. I'm very worried about a world in which people who identify themselves as members of the hashtag resistance are all convinced that they are the ones who are most at risk and therefore leave people who are actually at risk under the bus.
0: Here's what I love about SimpliSafe. These guys obsess over the details, and it is why their alarm system is so good. Uh, so, so here's an example. A typical glass break sensor sometimes gets fooled, a false positive, sounds like dropped plates or, or a baby crying. So Safe did not want to settle for typical because really good home security should be really accurate. They actually constructed a glass break test facility. They ran over 10,000 live glass break simulations, refining their detection technology until it was so accurate, you can distinguish a broken plate from a broken window. This is the level of detail SimpliSafe puts into everything they do. It sets them apart from other security companies. Simply Safe System is designed so that you will never notice it, never have to think about it. It's that easy and intuitive. There's no contract. They work hard to earn your business. 24 7 monitoring with police and fire dispatch is just $15 a month. Uh, let me say, I, I have one of these systems myself. What I would personally recommend it for is it was super easy to set up. I got a little camera on my front door. I got the detectors everywhere. The app works great. It is really easy. I'm kind of a moron about like home stuff, not very handy. I got the this is done like in no time. Um, so this is the best all-around the clock protection you could find. Order your Simply Safe security system today at simplysafe.com slash weeds, and Simply Safe will also donate one to a family in need. That's simplysafe.com slash weeds, simplysafe.com slash weeds. Okay, Sarah, Tyler Hill wants to know what recent state or local policy initiative would do the most good if applied federally.
1: So I don't know if this is a bit of a cop-out, but I think it is a state initiative. I think it's just expanding Medicaid. Like, it's not exciting. It's not like something you haven't heard of before. Like, I could tell you about some of the policy experiments and the impact. But really, when you're thinking, like, it kind of goes back to the answer I was giving on the Oregon lottery. Like, if you think of what could make the biggest difference in folks' lives, it really is participating in the Medicaid expansion, I think. Maybe there's other ones— you know, I'm not thinking of, but we're just seeing this huge wave of research that's starting to come out now that Medicaid expansion's been around for four years about, you know, it's not just about finance, like the financial security. We saw a paper come out, you know, a few weeks ago showing that, um, women were much more likely to have coverage when they were pregnant, to get better care when they were pregnant in states that expand Medicaid. You see lower rates of infant mortality. Like, there are just so many—you um, see more people, like, holding on to their houses, like, not going under. There's just so much—because our health care system is so expensive, there's so much that is related to getting health coverage. So it's not like something no one has heard of, but it really seems like the most impactful thing a state could do right now is to expand its Medicaid program.
2: So I want to ask Matt a question that Will Pfeffer asked to Matt and or Ezra. I was wondering if Matt and or Ezra could explain why they think internet socialists hate them so much.
0: Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, I always think about 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and like, why did I hate a certain cohort of somewhat older, somewhat more established, somewhat more politically moderate opinion writers so much. And looking back, I'm like genuinely a little bit confused as to like, like you know, but I mean, of course, I could also I could give you my reasons, you know what I mean? Like, there were specific things that we disagreed with about, right? So like, I, I think the this most specific, most concrete criticism that you could make about me and Ezra is that when we were young kids in college getting our start in the blogs, we were both proponents of the Bush administration's uh, line on Iraq and weapons of mass destruction. and That was, of course, in retrospect, the incorrect take. To have, but I think that you could say that career-wise, it was like the right take to have had and that we like rode the arc of conventional wisdom on that subject in a convenient way. And I think it's, you know, perfectly legitimate for people to look back on that in a frustrated kind of way right and and that like that that's not a good feature of american society i mean also i i guess i'm not a socialist and if you are a socialist then People who aren't socialists are bad. But I don't really think that that explains it, right? Because I I think to myself, it's like I used to be more enraged by people who were a little bit more moderate than I was than it was by people who were way more conservative than I was. And I now feel some of that sting from people and it's like a little bit irrational. But but also I I understand where it's coming from. It's like you're competing over the same – ecosystem space, right? Whereas the decision of like, well, are we going to have a conservative on? Or are we going to have someone from the left on? It's just made it a much higher level that there's no reason to argue about. But it's like, are you going to put this asshole Iglesias on? Or are you <laughs> going to have like a real leftist? Right? That's like, that's the kind of, choice that, that gets made on a ground level. And like, whether people think I'm an idiot or not has a meaningful impact on that. So if you want to be cast in the role of spokesperson for the left, you have to tear down other people who might plausibly play that role. And I guess, you know, that's me. And so we're we're locked in a cage fighting. You, you
1: become the establishment, Matt.
0: Yes, sort of. Yeah.
1: All right, Dara, Dan Stern wants to know, what fictional dystopia do you find most likely to become a reality? What policy
2: fixes would you enact to prevent that? I admit that I took this question mostly because I think it's an excellent question, not because I think I'm the best read person on dystopias. Uh, my, My dystopia reading, like most other people's, probably stopped about when I graduated from high school. But Among the kind of canonical dystopias like Handmaid's Tale, 1984, I would put The Giver in here, Fahrenheit 451, I think Brave New World is the one that I always found most plausible uh, even as I was reading, and I don't think that that has changed. And the reason for that is the same reason that I think policy fixes for it are not possible because the difference between Brave New World and your conventional, like, a boot stomp on a stomping on a human face forever dystopia is that brave new world isn't just about like changes made by the government to oppress people it's about the way that systems have evolved to give people what they want and it turns out that giving people what they want is bad <laughs> um so it's really it's it's That makes it much more robust, like you can't really organize a rebellion because there's not one particular thing to rebel against and because a lot of people are genuinely pretty happy with their lives. So I, you know, generally think that the most plausible, like terrible things to happen are the things that it's going to be hardest to prevent, which is why we're currently facing global apocalypse by climate change. Um, but I am more than happy to have weed folks in the Facebook group. And now I suppose now that y'all have started emailing us via email telling me that there are other dystopias that better fit my concerns?
0: So a very similar in spirit question. Joshua Hallibau wants Sarah to answer <laughs> yes. a question about uh, direct graduate medical education payments. <laughs> the uh, true dystopia under, of our under time. the Medicare system. No, so I, I, this is one I really want to know the answer to. Right. So basically his point is Medicare uh, finances graduate medical education, residencies, fellowships, other things like that. And he's asking, like, should we target this in a more strategic way so that it's specifically goes to train high need specialties or medically underserved areas? Should be you be required to do public service or to serve Medicaid patients as opposed to just like, here, we'll have some doctors and we'll see what happens?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, it's a really interesting question. And I think so right now, you know, you essentially you're a young medical student. You can kind of just pick, OK, I want to go into this specialty. I want to earn a lot of money and be a radiologist or, you know, an orthopedist. You know, I want to be primary care doctor. You just pick what you want to do and kind of go on your way. And it is kind of a weird part of the American American education system where, you know, you don't have, like, other things like law or, you know, PhD programs being financed by the people who ultimately become your payer, the people who, you know, will be paying you when you're a professional are also helping pay for the education of doctors. I mean, I think it kind of depends on what your policy goals are. Are You know, if you feel like there is a problem with these underserved area, then it's a pretty decent lever you could pull. I mean, you could almost see like a Teach for America-esque structure of this where, you know, as part of the— medical student resident training, you know, um, system that you're going through that there's like a two-year period that you're spending, you know, in in some kind of area that needs more help. I think it'd be a little hard with with specialties because it's kind of hard to be like, okay, you're going to go, you know, be someone like a geriatrician, for example, which is a profession that deals with older people, is an area that it's been really hard to recruit doctors to. You're going to go do that for two years because I think that requires a little more expertise um, but it I think it just kind of depends on what your policy goals are if your goals are getting more doctors to those areas then like yeah it does sound like an interesting policy area and one that Medicare would have a lot of sway over how they want to um, how they want to implement it
2: I, I, I actually I'm gonna double barrel this I want to ask Sarah a question sure via Mark Peckham. Will you finally tell us the story of your mother acting as your dental assistant in the Canadian healthcare system? Oh, man. That's a weeds deep cut. (laughs) That came up like eons ago, I think,
1: back when it was just me, Matt and Ezra. Okay, so the story of my mother acting as my dental assistant is when I was seven years old, I was playing with my brother and we were holding hands, kind of twirling around in a circle, going faster and faster, and someone let go and... I flew into his nightstand and knocked out my two front teeth. So we went to the children's hospital, and we got there, and it was kind of late at night. And they had a dentist there, but they did not have a dental assistant. So in order to deal with my teeth, my mom had, you know, like the um, thing that kind of, like, sucks out your spit, like, when you're at the dentist. Like, my mom was there operating that. So, I mean, it's like a good news, bad news Canadian healthcare system story. On the one hand, like, all this care was provided. It was free. My teeth are look fine. Like, I don't think you can tell my front two teeth. My front two teeth are now fake because of this. I don't think it's like super obvious. I had no idea. No, well, now now you know. On the other hand, you know, my mom had to step in and be a dental assistant, which isn't really like the top healthcare system that you're hoping for. But so. like holding
2: the little straw thing, like that's something that fine. like had you been a little older, you probably could have done yourself. Usually don't make it do you. Usually like some dental hygienist. It's,
1: it's, I don't know. It was fine. My teeth are fine. I survived. So, OK, we're going to wrap up with a lightning round of questions that seem to lend themselves to short answers, although we'll see if they're actually short. OK, first one from Leonard Muir. Can each of the hosts share a great book they read during this year?
2: Uh, the Field of Blood by Joanne Freeman. Theodore
0: Roosevelt, A Strenuous Life by Kathleen Dalton.
1: Bad Blood by John Carew. Okay, we'll see if we can answer this one. Carter Nakamoto wants to know, when is Ezra's book coming out? (laughs) We also
0: have this question. (laughs) Great question, Carter. (laughs) Patricia Anderson wants to know, who does the Weeds theme song?
2: I looked this up. It is called Blocklight Theme, and it is by Ian Britt. Uh, Andrew Lopez wants to know, if you had decided not to go into journalism, what was your plan B? It's
0: a lawyer. Teacher.
2: Sociology grad student? Oof. And Brooke Garrison wants to know, when our nation crumbles, what country should I try to emigrate to? Uh, with the obligatory grumbling from last time. I, I guess Canada. Like, I'll take the easy one. And Germany. New Zealand's delightful. <laughs> <laughs> OK. And our last lightning round question. Will there ever be a Jane, Sarah, Dara episode? Yes. yes. One day. Right, like, we just have to get Matt and Ezra to be out on the same day. Yes. It's so really a legit invite them to something. Invite Just them to so a man conference, conference a room Yeah, yeah. Like, have a hold a hold a, a, a man retreat.
0: Okay, <laughs> I love it.
2: Okay, I think that's what we got. Thank you for joining us on the weeds. Okay, yeah. To, thank uh, you. So, thank
0: you so much uh, to everybody who wrote in. Uh, apologies to people whose questions we were not able to get to, but we will do more of these uh, in the future. I think it's really fun. It's a good way to, to get, uh, you know, some more engagement for people and get ourselves thinking in a little bit of a of a looser, uh, more informal way. I like to do it a lot. Um, so, thanks to all of you. Thanks, as always, to our producer Jeffrey Geld and the Weeds. will be back soon.